Hello, hello. How are you today? The episode that I have for you today is a little different than anything that I've ever done before. And what this is, is it started out as an interview and it turned into this crazy, fun, like totally off the cuff conversation with Kelly Starrett, who is a New York Times bestselling author of several books, but one of them is Becoming a Supple Leopard. Because, of course, who doesn't want to be a supple leopard, right? And he and his wife were pioneers in the uh, CrossFit movement. And today they run the Ready State, where they work with Olympians, they work with uh, top sports figures and athletes, just worldwide. And they also work for or work with all of us who just want to be fit and free. So thank you so much for being here. Listen in. This is a good one. You're listening to the Fittest Freedom Podcast, and I'm your host, Kelly Howard. I've been in the fitness and outdoor adventure space for almost two decades. Today, I'm known as the motivation and adventure coach. I help smart, successful women and a few guys navigate the space between mindset, motivation, and movement to move away from self-doubt and to learn to embrace their inner athlete. You already know what you want to do, and I bet you have a pretty good idea what you need to do. Together, we can fine-tune the details and create the steps you need to get moving forward. Think of me as your shortcut to a life of fitness, fun, and freedom. I'm so glad you're here. Kelly, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, total pleasure. Thank you for your flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny. This is like the Kelly and Kelly show again. I think this is, you are probably the third or fourth interview I've had with someone named Kelly. So I really appreciate it. Oh man, we can just riff for an hour about (laughs) burden of Kelly ship. You know, people ask, they ask me like, you know, how do you spell your name? And I'm like, K-L-Y. But if I had my choice, it would be K-L-I with a little skull puking out another skull. Like that's how hardcore I would be. Instead... I'm, I'm stuck. And I don't know if you know this, but Kelly Starrett is pretty Irish. It is pretty Irish. Yep. I do recognize that. So you have this vast knowledge of all things movement. And before we came on here today, you were talking just a little bit about some of the things that you're really passionate about right now. And you talked about wilding. Mm. Tell me about wilding. You know, let's just say um, if we just for a second froze everyone in time and space and just said, how's it going? Let's just take a touch base. What we've seen is we've just pressure tested our health systems. And I don't mean big pharma. I don't mean our med- the ability of our physicians to help us out of the hole. I mean... We are now a little heavier than we were before the pandemic. We have increased rates of depression, massive increased rates of suicide, and and both of those in kids as low as 14. Um, We saw a a plethora of new sports orthopedic injuries because kids were coming out, uh, and and professional athletes too, and trying to get back up to speed. Um, You can look at the rise of recent current of opiates and addiction, uh, choose something you care about and then just say, well, how's it going? And what you'll see is, well, I, I don't think we're doing a good job. I think we keep adding complexity on top of the most sophisticated structure in the known universe, which is the human brain attached to the most sophisticated physiology in the known universe, which is the human body. And, what we saw was that we're not just bodies, we're not just brains, we're not just minds, we're all three of those things simultaneously. And when we stress our structures, one of my friends who's a, a neuroscientist at Stanford, uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman says, hey, look, a brain is only a brain if it's around other brains. Other, it's a social organ. Otherwise, it cannot exist by itself. And if you look at the changes in that and match the changes in, and the real pressures, and let me just back up for a second and say, no one's doing anything wrong. So what I, what I think is we have this really clear snapshot of here is the health of the system. And, you know, I think it's so easy to point fingers and be like, oh, you don't walk enough, you don't sleep enough. People are products of their environment and products of their training, products of their habitus, products of their education. And so right now is we're seeing not the failing of an individual, but the failing of society, the failing of our 
PE education, the failing of our high school education in terms of home ec, where we used to teach kids how to shop and eat and balance a checkbook and, and take care of themselves. What we're seeing right now is I don't think necessarily anything has changed except some of the behaviors that kept some of these processes a little bit more in check around sedentarianism. Uh, some of those things they've gotten worse because of the advent of the internet and the computer and the phone and the easily accessibility of really inexpensive calories. So, you know, the idea here is, um, we have to do a much better job of helping people come to understand what it is they need to do to take care of the physical, mental, psycho-emotional self. And that seems like a very tall order. But when I say rewilding, what I'm saying is, well, look, for two and a half million years, we've been working towards this moment. And we, I think one of the problems with human beings is that we are so immensely durable and our bodies and our physiology is so tolerant that we can buffer, you know, sneaking a cigarette and eating little chocolate donuts and not moving very much and still win a world championship when we're 23. But all of a sudden, I think, you know, one of, as a side, one of my favorite authors is a gentleman named Yuval Harari, you know, who's wrote Sapiens and Homo Deus, and his thinking about sort of the complex society changes, sort of the first book is a brief history of humankind, but I think one of the things that he points out is we are going to be a hundred years old, no problem in society. In fact, the research is that if you're a fifth grader today, um, the chance of you being 104 or 50%. That's what's happening. So what we have is sort of this gigantic mismatch of how we're living, how we're, how we're existing in our world, and we're not paying attention to the quality of our lives right. for the back half of our lives. Because all you have to do is, you know, the number one reason that you're probably going to die as you get older is you're going to fall and break your hip. And that cascade and sequela of problems, you'll lose your muscle mass, you'll lose your balance, you become orthostatic, you stop moving, you don't see with your family, like all the things that you were doing, gardening, walking, those are gone. And what our medical establishment has said, especially the physical therapists, so I'm going to hold our feet to the fire, is that, you know, it, all movement is fine, it doesn't really matter, you know, and clearly there are a set of behaviors that matter immensely. Like, for example... I'm very obsessed with um, helping people manage persistent pain and chronic pain because I think we've completely told the wrong narrative about this. Right. Right. It's all in your brain. We've done a lot of pain explaining, um, you know, and what, when people come to us with chronic pain, persistent pain, and there's a lot of people self-soothing, re reaching for bourbon, reaching for ibuprofen, reaching for THC, whatever to take the edge off. That's just self-soothing. I don't call it self-medicating because I think that that has a real negative connotation. If I hand you pain, and you aren't trained in what do I do to make myself feel better, you will reach for the only solution to self -soothe. You have to use whatever's around you. Food, yeah. you know, again, drug, it doesn't matter. It's just a self-soothing. Those are all going to the same thing for me. So one of the things that we want to do is say, look, if you don't sleep X amount, it's really difficult for me to understand what the inputs and outputs are. And that your lack of sleep is making your chronic pain worse and persistent pain worse if you don't move enough during the day. And I'm not talking about exercising. I'm just talking about standing, walking and getting up, getting up. I mean, <laughs> that's the difference, right? And we can, def and, and Harvard defines that as being above one and a half metabolic equivalents a day. So uh, an hour. So if you stand, you burn one and a half metabolic equivalents. If you remember the Mets on the old like Stairmasters, like what is a Met? Well, it's a metabolic equivalent. So sedentary behavior st starts below one and a half. So sitting down, you can get close to one and a half if you scoot to the edge of your chair and make your trunk work. If you lean into the chair, you're off one and a half metabolic equivalents. So how do we get more behaviors in where we keep people in this moving, not exercising, mm -hmm. not standing is good, sitting is bad, how do we say, well, in two and a half million years of evolution, here's what we know to be true. We have to move more 
and and it can be junk movement. It doesn't matter what the movement is. You have to sleep. You need some sunshine. You need to feel love and feel safe. You need a lot more micronutrients than you're probably getting. You probably should eat something that rhymes with offal and you know organ meat so you can have the connective tissue and B vitamins and all that. But if you don't like that, there's other ways to do it. You know what I mean? But there are these kind of universal isms that for us, my wife and I, really make a base camp sort of agglomeration of behaviors that are non-negotiable. And you don't have to play perfectly every day. You just yeah. have to be a little bit better. And what we haven't done is given people the roadmap for that. I was going to say, let's, let's stop for a second, because tell us, like, in a really simple way, what are those? Like, I mean, you touched on them. Well, well you know. How does it mean? What, tell me how it matters. Well, you know, I think one of the issues for us is that we see a book on diet, it's a verticality or a book on exercise, right? And what we fail to appreciate is that these things are not discrete aspects of our physiology and our brain health and psychoemotional health. They are, our bodies are tightly coupled and interlocking systems. So let me give you an example of what I mean. If you don't move a lot during the day, you're probably not going to accumulate enough what we call non-exercise activity that's going to accumulate enough fatigue where you fall asleep. Mm -hmm. So if you're having sleep problems, one of the first things that we suggest is that you walk more. So we want people to say that probably 7,500, 8,000 steps is probably what I want you to think of as your RDA minimum. You want to go above that knock yourself right out. But that is sort of the minimum where we can decongest the tissues. And as an aside, for example, your sewage system of your body is your lymphatic system. It's also how you move um, your immune system through your body. But if you've ever sat on an airplane, looked down and realized you had cankles, that's a good indicator that you're not moving and then your fluid is congesting in your tissues. So the lymphatic system is bootstrapped into the movement system. So muscle contraction drives the waste process management in your body. So if you want to get the garbage out and bring the groceries in, you have to contract your muscles. And guess what? Your body is completely agnostic about how you do that. Want to walk? Want to jump rope? Want to play soccer? It doesn't matter. Want to lift weights? You got to move. And so what we know is if you don't contract your muscles, you're not going to move that three liters of lymph full of all the proteins and all the broken down old cells and all the things that your body's renewing. It's just going to stay st static and in stasis. So if we're trying to have a body that is robust and repairs itself and heals itself, you got to move. There's a fancy term for this called, and I'll walk it back to walking in a second, but there's a fancy term called mechanotransduction, which means at a cellular level, many of our tissues require physical input in order for them to express themselves genetically, which means if you want a tendon to be a tendon, guess what a tendon does? It absorbs force. It pauses and it generates force through the muscle. That's a tendon. If you don't put those things into a tendon's daily life habit, you will have a sub-tendon, a demi-tendon, a little tendon, a, a, a fake <laughs> tendon. So if you want to have a disc that's strong, if you want to have feet that don't hurt, it's counterintuitive, but you have to load these things and load them a little bit every day. Now, notice I didn't say jump into some high-intensity kickboxing class, which is what right. we do. I got to get in shape. Let's do it. Boom. Let's do it. And then they're hurt. Well, that's the mistake. The what we want to do is say, well, hey, how do I max out my credit? So we were talking about sleep before and how tightly coupled the systems are. But on these two detours, I've just showed you that your metabolic health is required to move. And if you want to have strong tendons and healthy skin and healthy connect tissues, you have to move. But also this walking piece is interesting because if you don't move around enough, you're not going to be tired. And then guess what? Maybe you have a glass of wine to relax or you, you know, have poor night's sleep. So the next morning you have a poor night's sleep. And the next morning you wake up and you're a little groggy because you had a poor night's sleep. And so you get on the caffeine, which is most of us can relate to it, right? And you start, you start stepping on that caffeine pedal and at three or four o'clock, because you haven't slept well and you're on the caffeine, you don't really feel like moving very much. You're a little sluggish. But three or four o'clock comes around and you're not going to make it. So you hit the caffeine again. 
And then guess what? Now we have poor movement. We don't have enough movement. Plus we have caffeine. Then I hit the gas, right? Which is the caffeine. Then I have to counteract that with the break, which is the alcohol. And guess what? Alcohol is the greatest self-soothing device ever in the history of the world. But the problem is it wrecks your sleep unequivocally destroys your sleep and heart function. So now you're in this depressant stimulant cycle where you're like, I can't fall asleep. I'm stressed. I don't move. I feel terrible. And then rinse, wash, repeat that for a decade or so. And let me know what happens to the quality of your skin. Let me know what happens to your desire to move. And what we see is some of these processes are hidden from us. But if I told you, hey, I want you to just walk 8,000 steps a day, and if you got 10,000 today, great, and if you got 6,000 yesterday, get it back up to this minimum, then we can begin to see what's what. But what we keep doing is, you know, I was in, hanging out with one of my, one of my daughters recently, and she's like, you know, Dad, if dogs are overweight, we take them for more walks and give them less food. And if people are overweight, we, go <laughs> on, we take fat burners and juice cleanses. And I was like, because we're totally different, right? Like, totally different. she's like, that's really weird when you kind of think about it. I'm like, well, you're 12. You don't understand anything yet, right? So, so the idea here is for us is to come back to these primary principles. And more importantly, to shift this agency back to people. So that they realize that you don't have to be a perfect game. You don't have to be some kind of self-disciplined ninja. What I want you to do is walk more. It's easy to track that. And I want you to get in bed and think to yourself, seven hours of sleep is my bare minimum. Seven hours of sleep and you are in what we call survival mode, right? And, you know, if you don't care about your hair falling out or going being sucky on your run or having poor performance cognitively at your work, by all means, sleep less than six hours. It's totally fine. Sleep less than seven hours. doesn't matter. And what you'll say is, well, Bill Clinton only slept four hours. I'm like, Bill Clinton died of a heart attack and we brought him back. And so the key here, you know, um, even President Obama said, you know, he told me if I had slept more, I could have been an even more effective president. You know, and that, that's really powerful from a person who was actually looking at these things. So what we want to do for the average person is say, hey, let's have some minimums so that we know what blood pressure, good, decent blood pressure is. If I say 120 over 80, everyone knows what that is. Well, that's not good blood pressure. That's just the borderline for crappy blood pressure, right? Our goal is to get our right. blood pressure down. So when we begin to establish movement minimums and behavior minimums, it's totally okay if you have a baby or go through a stressful time or like, and you're like, whoa, way below my minimums. But right now, no one has a basic idea of what these minimums should be because they're sort of hidden from us and our bodies are so tolerant. And all of a sudden we turn around and we can't get up and down off the ground effortlessly. We can't, our feet hurt or something pops up. And what I want us to know is that you are designed to be pain-free and to last a hundred years. Those are our minimums. So when something hurts or something goes on, what we need to do is not freak out, but to ask, hey, that's information about the body or about what's going on. And there's something I can do to control that. Yeah. Okay. That's a really good point because a lot of times as soon as something hurts or something goes wrong, we panic. Oh yeah, for sure. Like, right. I mean, oh no, now it's all over. And, but the truth is, is that it is just feedback. Oh, love that you said that. You know, we completely, one of my friends um, is this incredible practitioner um, and he, uh, Perry Nicholson, and he has this saying that pain is a request for change. So what's interesting, and one of the things that my wife and I are obsessed with doing is that we live in high performance environments, right? So um, British soccer, I don't know if you watched England play in the, the Europa Cup. I didn't watch it. I heard about it. But okay. Well, they're, they're one of my teams, right? And I have all these athletes going. So I test my stuff in the field of play of performance. How do I know what it works? Well, we run it as hard as we can under the most austere conditions. We see what works and we doesn't. And it should be known, I'm going to quote another coach here, that there's more variation in waltzing than there is in sprinting, which means that low load and low speed okay. and low stress doesn't really matter very much, right? You know, you can smoke that cigarette, eat that little chocolate donut, because it's just, but as soon as there's stress involved, the principles become hyper clear about what best practice is around movement, around potential, around sleep, nutrition. So we've been able to take some of those concepts out of our Formula One experience and say, okay, let's apply them to the 
to the mortals in society, the rest of us? How does otherwise sport is entertainment and that's fine. Let's just take our gladiators and we'll break them and throw them on the pile when they're done. Or sport becomes the greatest living laboratory about ourselves right. on the planet. And I love that second hypothesis. And it, yeah. uh, maybe it's rationalization because I, I like to work in sport. But one of the things that we know is that if I, I'm working with a young woman who uh, was our Olympian, one of our Olympians in mountain biking. Her name is Kate Courtney. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. And if you dropped into Kate's brain in the middle of a World Cup race, right? You would perish from pain. You would be like, this is the worst pain I've ever felt. I don't know what this is. Take me out. I'm going to kill myself because the amount of pain she's in. Now, the difference is she expects that pain. She's habituated to that pain. When she stops, the pain stops, right? But that's just information. So if you showed up to my gym and you sucked today on the bike and I was like, Hey, Kel, what's going on? You're like, well, had a big deadline. I'm super stressed. I went out for a big meal and smashed three pizza and four liters of beer. I'd be like, oh, okay. I can see inputs and outputs. So your decrease in wattage, your decrease in power, your decrease in drive and motivation makes sense in terms of the context. As soon as we take pain and put it into the category of information, just like why did you suck today in the workout, Kel? And you're like, well, I did these things. So I'm like, why does your knee hurt? And we're like, well, I sat for a bunch of hours. I didn't move my body, right? And what we want people to hear, and if there's one thing you take away from this talk, is that pain does not mean tissue damage. It does not mean trauma. It does not mean anything is broken. It is an alert signal, and it's really a powerful tool to help you change a behavior or to bring your focus or awareness to something. Kelly here, and I just got back from a trip with my Fittest Freedom alumni, and it was so cool to see what happens when people learn to get really consistent with their fitness, to really like have that community that cheers them on, have that accountability, have the coaching and the deep dive time with me when they need it. So if you're interested, we have uh, the Fittest Freedom Experience opening up again in August. So just go over to fitisfreedom.com forward slash waitlist. That's fitisfreedom.com forward slash waitlist. And we'll send you all the details. So thanks so much for listening. I'm going to have to ask you a question though, because I'm going to get this one. The question is going to be, so when do you know the difference? Like, when do you know that it's just a warning? And when do you know that it's, oh boy, this is in trouble? So great. So I won't even use my definition. I'll go to this great sociologist named Syed, Syed Nagy or the Nagy model. And we have taken this idea out of another, so taking the soggy, the, the, the soggy model of dysfunction, and I mapped it into this other model that came out of complex systems theory called normal accident theory, which means that if you take a complex system and let that system just express itself normally, you will get these outlier events mm-hmm. that seem like total fluke, but actually because the processes are hidden from us and the timeline may be sufficiently long, it's actually a normal expression of the system, right? That if you don't walk and don't ever move and then you go walk a marathon, I can guarantee you. And you're like, I don't understand. My feet are fine. And then today they fell apart, right? And I'm like, well, it's actually a normal expression of these behaviors if we give the system enough time. So all the things we're talking about around base camp, around creating a readiness and a sort of a viability of the body to reduce some of those outlier phenomenons, right? So people are like, hey, I just want to feel better. You're you're getting into complex motor theory. Sorry, hang on. So (laughs) what an easy way to do is you can drop into two things. And this is so important. If everyone knew this, this would help so much. If you have night sweats or dizziness or fever or vomiting or nausea, or unaccounted weight loss and weight gain, or it feels sketchy, or you've lost control of your bladder or bowel function, go get help. Those are what we call red flags. And that's, that's pathology. Like if your child has a f- huge fever 
the mom doesn't immediately go to the, to the ER. Well, oh, it's 101. Let's keep an eye on that, right? We don't freak out right away. Goes up to 103. We start calling our doc. 104, we're like, hey, if we can't get this down, we're going to go in the hospital, right? right? So we understand some of those features. But what we're really interested in is how do I know if this is a serious problem or not? Cannot occupy my role in the family. Cannot occupy my role in society. If you can't go to work, that's a medical emergency. Let me say that again. If your pain is so bad, you can't go to work. That's a medical emergency. You can't occupy a role on the team. You can't go to school because you're in pain. Medical emergencies. How simple is that for us to understand? Hey, I heard a snap and now I can't walk on my ankle. Sounds like a medical emergency. Let's go get help. <laughs> right. <laughs> Everything else is not a medical emergency. And it may be very severe, but... You, as soon as you realize, hey, I can't dr drive and I'm a trucker or I can't pick up my kid, let's go get some help. The rest of this falls into what we call the incident category. It's not an injury. It's an incident, which means, hey, well, what are the tools available to me to help self-soothe, to desensitize, de-escalate this, and maybe take a crack at making myself feel better? Because guess what? That's what we're currently doing anyway. It's called ibuprofen and alcohol and THC. And like, so we're already having sort of a non-honest, very dishonest conversation about this because people are reaching for all of these self-soothing techniques anyway. And then they just go as long as they can without changing any of the other behaviors until they have to go see their doctor, right? This is so bad. I cannot stand and do my, now I go see my doctor. Meanwhile, we've been living with pain and dysfunction and craziness and stop hanging out with our friends and I'm afraid to ride my bike. And we just have so, told everyone sort of the wrong message. And we, and we have very powerful tools to help people feel better in their own homes. And you're not going to go blind, not going to injure yourself. Remember, you're that maniac who still walked on that sore toe for a marathon because you didn't want to disappoint your mother-in-law. Like that's still you. So hang in there. You're so tough. But just for a second, let's say that the resting state of the human being is pain-free, but pain is common and typical and not to be feared. It's to be understood. Yeah, I like that. I mean, because it it is. It is one of those things that when it happens, it, it, people become afraid. Oh, absolutely. Look, and check this out. You know, you turn your ankle, you're like, ah, I turn my ankle. You limp around for a few days, you know, whatever. It gets better. You turn your back, right? And you're like, right. I've got back cancer. I've herniated six discs. I'm going to need surgery. And, whoa, whoa. Exactly. <laughs> Why? The reason for that, for everyone knows, is that your nervous system runs really closely to your spine. It's really weird how those things, so your body prioritizes those things as very serious because if you cannot feed yourself, move through the environment, interact, reproduce, those are primary threats to your survival as an organism. So your brain gets, pays very, very much close attention to those pain behaviors around your nervous system spine. So again, the research is very clear. Most like, ah, I tweak my back. It usually gets better in four to six weeks doing nothing, right? right? But what I'm proposing is I don't think you have to wait four to six weeks to feel better. You know what I mean? Like there's a whole lot of things you can do besides just pretend, putting your, your head in the right. hole. You know, and simultaneously, people do have real trauma, right? So that's why we want people to know, hey, if numbness and tingling in your saddle area, so you think you can't go to work, let's go get some help right away. Back is sore from playing pickleball. Let's not panic about that because what ends up happening is we lump the brain's ability to heal the crazy neuroplasticity gone wrong and chronic and persistent pain match that with my knee hurts after my run. Like those are not equivalent things, right? So mm -hmm. again, that delineation is cannot occupy my role in society or I have a red flag. Now it's time to talk to a medical professional. The rest of it, you know, is like your grandma had a whole bunch of weird stuff that she would do, like put honey on your cuts. And you're like, what is that about grandma? Well, it turns out we understand that honey is seriously antibacterial, right? You can eat 10,000 year old honey and it's fine. But uh, you know, there's some behaviors that we figured out that we've completely divested from our current understanding what it means to be a modern human living in this current environment, which we're not going to change. 
Chairs are not going away. Right. Delicious fried foods are not going away. So what do we do about it? How do we work our heads around it? Well, we have thumbs and free will. We just need to make slightly different choices and start at a much earlier age. Well, well, so, okay, that is something that I would like to mention because this is a big deal for you and your wife. It's getting kids to Mm -hmm. stand up when they're at desks, getting kids to move more, getting kids like started younger. How is that working? You know, it's such a good question. So we started a, a nonprofit called Stand Up Kids. We, in 2010, I gave a talk at Google about creating a more dynamic work environment. And what we see is if you work at any Fortune 500 company or at all, as long as we work on a system where the employer is the primary means of insurance, every single employee is, is on their ledger. And so um, at these large organizations, like uh, maybe you've heard like the Army or the Navy, um, you know, the Army, the last time they did a big survey, they had uh, 55 million lost user days of work for non-combat-related musculoskeletal problems. Wow. So that was just the people of the Army, my foot hurts, can't go to work, right? Can't deploy. And, you know, that is a big number of lost user days and lost disability. So the army is suddenly like, this is too expensive a problem. We need to start solving this problem. The Navy and Naval Special Warfare started to um, assign a dollar amount to the training of their soldiers. So this soldier, she gets, is injured, non-deployable. That's a $1.7 million asset we can't put in the field right now. And so suddenly someone was like, oh, we need to think differently about this problem. So one of the things that we see is that everyone in these HR departments is dumping more and more money and wellness challenges. And what we see is that we have a population that isn't thriving, as we talked about earlier. So we turned around and always in the spirit of high performance drives changes in society. That's what we're trying to do. And that's an E.O. Wilson idea, the highest forms the highest service of science is to inform the humanities. Well, I've just taken that maxim and said, well, the highest service of strength and conditioning and human performance is to transform families and transform society through these health behaviors. And so it's just an extension. And so we went into our daughter's elementary school and we're like, wow, this kid is in the sixth grade and she is almost six feet tall. And this kid is in the sixth grade and he's four foot one and they sit at the same size desk and they, we put trackers on our kids and because we're those parents and our kids on rainy days move 2000 steps a day or less. Right? So remember total sitting time as defined by Harvard is of greater than six hours is sedentary lifestyle. So what we saw was if we started to aggregate the amount of non-activity, because remember this isn't about sitting versus standing. This is about moving above one and a half metabolic equivalents or not. What we found was all of those kids were not meeting that threshold. So we're like, go outside and play and play and play and play. But during the school day, I need you to sit like a statue with your rounded spine and your forward head on neck and your compromised breathing. And your and, and what we saw was that we had this growing body, this growing young person who was subjected to an environment that wasn't conducive to the kinds of loading or kinds of forces or kind of movement that we had. So all we did was say, well, hey, there's these things called standing moving desks and they're individually adjusted for the chair for the student. And the student has a place to put their foot, just like drinking at a pub where we used to go drinking. You lean up against the bar and have a rail for your foot. And guess what? You saw improvements in behavior. Kids were getting in less trouble. Um, kids, parents reported that kids were coming home happier. Um, kids liked it because they had agency and could move and fidget and do whatever they needed to do. The discs, the heights of the desks actually fit the child. Like that's not like you and I wearing the same size shoe, your size 16 shoe and my size four foot. Like that's weird. But the negative feedback that we heard for, were from teachers because they were able to get through their curricula 
a month or so earlier than they were the year before. So the teacher actually had to program and develop more lesson plans because the kids were so effective at learning. And it turns out that we then converted our daughter's school to an all-stating school. We had 500 kids for the last decade who've never sat down from kindergarten through sixth grade. And it doesn't seem radical at all because what we're really doing is just saying, hey, here's what the human being needs and we have thumbs so we can manipulate our environments. Let's do that. So we started to work you know, nationally and internationally and what we found like was a little bit of a pouring water onto sand. We weren't making a big enough change. And what we realized when some of our working with Cal Berkeley around this topic was that we needed large, rigorous research to show how this, as a part of this intervention, starting with earlier kids, could give us a chance to go and make policy change. So that if a new school was built, we could look differently about the furniture or we can meet these minimums. Because what people don't realize is that when you and I went to high school, the chance of us being diabetic was one in 4,000. Now it's one in four, independent of how much money your, your parents make and what color of your skin is. And if you're a black woman, it's two out of three. And if you're a Hispanic man, there's a 66% chance you'll be diabetic. And so what we have to ask is, well, how's it going? Well, we can't seem to get sodas out of schools. So where can we make some of these changes? And one of the things that we can do is begin to change the environment. And the research out of Texas A&M by Dr. Mark Benden on these is very clear that about every year a kid is in elementary school, they add two body mass index percentage points to mm -hmm. their score. Okay. Heavier and heavier. And heavier. And what we saw was that kids who were at standing interventions, movement interventions, lost to body mass index. So over one year, you might see a delta of four, and over two years, you might see a delta of eight. And now extrapolate that out through the, the career of a young elementary school student, and you're putting kids into high school or middle school at very, very different intervention points. And so what we've come to realize is that we have to think differently about where we start these interventions and, and what the interventions look like. So the research we're currently doing with Berkeley is looking at a whole bunch of health questionnaires. Are kids moving? Are, you know, how do they know about sleep? And it turns out our kids in these elementary schools with 80% obesity rates don't have basic health information. So we're not doing a good job. So once again, we put people into the world and we're like, what's your problem? Well, the problem is we've never instructed or practiced some of these essential behaviors about what it means to be a functional human. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I actually have no children myself, but when I was reading about what y'all were doing, I started thinking about it. And then I do know about the issues with diabetes and, and kids and it just seems to me just intuitively that if you can get a child to stand, they enjoy it. It's not like arduous for them. Then it's a domino effect, right? It's not just the standing, but it's the eating has to get better. The sleep has to get better. I just have to believe that everything follows. Is that Remember what that What I said was that the problem is we look at these behaviors as siloed and not tightly coupled. And as to your point, which you just articulately extrapolated, that if I change one aspect of a system, I'll see a domino fall along because that one aspect will change multiple aspects of the rest of the system. And this is why you don't have to play a perfect game every day. You don't have to be a robot living off a checklist. I took this much turmeric. I did this meditation app, right? You don't follow the game. It's how do I play the best game available to me in this moment today with my available resources. Mm -hmm. And that will be enough because you were born a human being and humans are robust and badass. Recently, this weekend, there was a fight with Conor McGregor, an MMA fighter, and he suffered a fracture in training in his shin, but went ahead and fought and broke the rest of his foot on someone's elbow and then stepped back and snapped his fibula and tibia. They snapped in half. I'm and sorry, I shouldn't be wanted, laughing. <laughs> he wanted to keep on fighting and experience no pain. And during the interview, there he is with this leg that's flopped over and our friend Joe Rogan is interviewing him and he's like, it's not over. This is stopped. I want to stop. He's going insane. That's how powerful your brain is. That's right. how amazing humans are. <laughs> 
<laughs> Here's a guy who's, if I broke my leg like that, I'd be like, don't look at it, don't move it, right? I'd freak out. <laughs> His brain can top-down process that. And so really what we're talking about here is how do I create this psycho-emotional body, physical robustness? Because what I can tell you is I'm approaching 50 years old things are going to start to go haywire. A lot of the behaviors that I engaged in in my 20s may be coming back to haunt me. Um, some of the choices I made, maybe, or I'm, gonna, I'm in a cohort where suddenly I'm seeing a lot more cancer in my friends and heart disease and strokes. And what we're trying to do, and the way my wife and I train, we're not training for the apocalypse, don't get me wrong, but we're training to have a little few extra credits that make us more durable. And let me just tell you so people can understand, I don't live a perfect life where I stretch and eat bespoke foods. I have two daughters. We have a wild business, right? Like we have, we are just a typical American family. You know, seven years ago, I crashed on my skis and last October, I just had my knee replaced and my surgeon can't believe what I'm able to do on this knee now. And I'm like, well, here's what I've been doing. I've been eating food and I've been drinking some water and I've been sleeping and walking and swinging a kettlebell once in a while. And he's like, I don't understand. And I was like, I know. I mean, like I've just been doing the basics. My wife had breast cancer in 2019 and now she just, her main complaint was that, uh, you know, after a double mastectomy was that her pull-ups went down. You know, we are very lucky. Juliet has also had two hip replacements after having juvenile rheumatoid arthritis as a kid. We are not these people to which trauma has never happened. Right. We are examples of the body is very robust. And if you give it what it needs over decades and months, you'll have enough to be able to tolerate better the things that are surely coming down the pipe for us. You know, going back to what you said at the very beginning when we were talking about age, I have for a long time believed that we're probably going to all live for a long period of time. That's right. It's our medical industry is going to keep us alive one way or the other. And right. so it's up to us to decide how much fun and how well we're going to be doing it or if we're going to be, you know, run. I think if we can whole conversation down to this how much fun do you want to have in your life and how much capacity because you know my goal is to like be driving my stolen corvette in my hundreds with my wife you know and we're gonna just go off the cliff you know and um one of our friends uh professionally is a gentleman named peter atia who's his physician and he has this idea that we really like called the centenarian games if you had to invent 10 events, 10 Olympic events for yourself at age 100, what would those be for you? Oh, brilliant. I love that. It's a great idea. And my only, my only ding on his idea is he is like, I want to goblet squat 25 pounds. I'm like, who cares how much you goblet squat? Like, I want to be able to dirty dance with my wife. I want to <laughs> be able to get up and down off the ground. Like, so if you started that way and imagined your life, Look, we do this in others, other aspects of our life. What 30-year-old or what 25-year-old has a 401k for themselves? They don't. They don't save. We wish we'd saved. If you were old, you started saving when you were 16. I'm like, if you only started keeping an eye on your hip range of motion and sleep when you're 16, <laughs> it's, not how, it's not how we work. But when suddenly you're like, holy crap, I'm going to retire someday. I better get my financial plan in order, even if that's 401k or doing anything, right? This idea that we're talking about now is compounding interest of your body. But starting backwards of what do I want to do when I'm 100, work yourself backwards. And then it becomes very simple about keeping an eye on those key metrics. And it, and it could be as simple as this. How about this? In cultures that toilet on the ground and sleep on the ground, the fall risk in the elderly approaches zero. People still fall, but they don't fall very often. Why? Because they get up and down off the ground right. a lot. And if I dropped in and asked the average person, how many times have you gotten down up and down off the ground this week? The answer may be one, but most of the time it's zero. They have not done that which means they haven't taken themselves through a bigger range of motion. They haven't had to explore the ranges of their balance. Everything is really truncated. And so 
it's easy to sort of, because our environment gives us so many cues about how to live and how to interact with it, with itself that suddenly like, look, we're at a board meeting. You and I are both sitting right now because that's what's appropriate. Right. Right. That doesn't mean that this sitting is going to kill me at all. But if the rest of my day looks like this and the rest of my month looks like this, I mean, let me know how it goes for you. And I can guarantee you that what I can say is that you will have poor biomotor expression, which means you'll run slower, mm-hmm. swim slower, you'll be suckier at yoga, you won't be able to take a good breath or create as much intra pressure. What I can't say is that will cause pain. And I think what we've been doing wrongly, especially as a physical therapist, is that we've been trying to incentivize people with the fear of you'll be in pain if you do this or you'll get injured. Let me tell you, that's not true. That is not true. You may or may not ever have pain in your life because, you know, you're a stoic and you just don't feel it. Or you may feel sensitive just because a pillow hit you wrong. It doesn't matter what the mechanisms is. But what I can say is that your function will suck. And that's the thing we need to care about. I want you to lose fat, but I want you to put more muscle on first. And if we do that, then you'll lose fat. But our obsession with being less fat is not the same thing as let's be as durable and functional and strong as we can. Yeah. That is so, so true. I mean, you guys are doing some amazing things with this. Hold on. But we got, we're just getting started. Juliet and I, um, you know, my wife is a three-time world champion and, you know, we, um, you know, she's an attorney. She, we have just come through our apprenticeship. We've been doing this a long time, but we're finally in a place where we're seeing that our friends are becoming thought leaders. And there's a cabal of us who are starting to feel like if we don't get it right, it's on us. We can't point to another generation and be like, ah, well, we inherited this mess. Right. We are the generation that needs to start tugging at this Gordian knot a little bit. And I think we can, I think people are that smart and more importantly, self-interested and ego driven that they are going to care. <laughs> and that's fine. fine. That's fine. Right. That's because fine. it's whatever drives you. <laughs> it's well, whatever well, the, jack, the jacked and tan plan, man, if you feel fit and you're tanned, well, it turns out like that's a good recipe for feeling <laughs> sexy and awesome in your life. The jacked and tan plan. Not very scientific. Yep. <laughs> Well, Kelly, oh. I know all the comments. What about skin cancer? That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. You're, I agree. You know, appropriate, no, I get it. appropriate sun dosage. Yeah. Well, thank you. And is there anything else? I mean, we could go on, I know, for a very long time, but I don't want to take up the rest of your evening because you have things to do too. But let me just ask you, is there one other thing that you'd like to toss out there before we head out? Uh, yeah, I don't think you're eating enough fruits and vegetables. I think you're lying to yourself about how many fruits and vegetables you're eating. And look, it's very confusing. Should I be keto? Can I eat kale with oh, keto? What's oh, going gosh. on? You know, yeah. we're not in a health crisis because we eat too many bananas and apples. Put it that <laughs> way. And one of the things that we think can ma- massively improve your health is to eat more protein. And just like my wife and I try to get six different kinds of fruits and vegetables a day. That's sort of our internal goal. Someday I'm like, whoa, I don't think I even spelled the word fruit today, right? I didn't say anything. But if we could eat more micronutrients and increase our protein and the diversity of our proteins, what we see is we see a lot of positive changes in people's health where there's not room for crap. You feel full because you just ate a melon, an entire watermelon by yourself. Like, go ahead and gorge on an entire crate of strawberries and tell me you're like, uh, still give me those cookies. You can't do it. You, yeah. You'll be so disgusted with yourself. Like, uh, I'm so I'm such a glutton. I've ate all these strawberries. And that's our point. We're like, shove it down, gorge on the protein and the good stuff. And then don't worry about the other stuff. We are in this hyper restrictive diet culture where we keep taking things away from people. And the research is actually, we're eating fewer calories from sugar, but we're still eating this calorically, horrifically dense foods, right? And uh, when you start to realize that, I'm like, man, there's a lot of things you can do. And, and so I like to see more micronutrients. Why? Because I'm obsessed with your tissue health. I want your tissues and ligaments and tendons and skin to look great. And that takes micronutrients. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And I, you know what? And I will, I will second you on the protein because I can tell you um, for myself, been vegetarian for almost 40 years 
and I'm seeing that it's not working as well as it could have for me. Well, you notice and, that I didn't say you have to eat meat. I just said I want you to get more protein. Right. So that I, but I don't do the powders like I could. You just have to, you have to just be very disciplined about it. And I think that's totally yeah. okay. We just have to bring yeah. some consciousness to it. And there's a whole lot of ways where we can get your protein levels up. Like, you know, I don't think eating too much soy is the problem. You know, like, I mean, you know, I mean, whatever proteins work for you. I have some friends who just do not like meat and I'm like, great. There's a thousand other things I can think of, but eating fish every three days does not count. Eating quinoa once a quarter does not count. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> I, we want to sidestep this culture war of diet and, and eating because humans can, we can, many of us can be great vegetarians. Many of us can eat only meat and carnivores and we can still do really well. But what we find is that people are not getting enough protein read whatever source you want and they don't get enough micronutrients. We see a lot of vegetarian friends that we have who actually don't eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. They're vegetarians. They eat a lot of bread and beans. And I've we'll seen that. Total, total number, but right. I'm like, how many different kinds of beans? Oh, only black beans this week. <laughs> well, I think that's where we were trying to go. We just need to come back to, you know, not what variety. Is, here's yeah. Variety is good, but here's the benchmark. And also I just want to say, I'm not anti-alcohol. I think, I think I love champagne. I think it's proof of God's love for humans and our intelligence simultaneously. But I just don't drink when I'm stressed. And I don't drink when I'm under a lot of strain. When those things are not in my life, you will see a glass of champagne in my hand. Interesting. Yeah, I, I understand that one too. Good job. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Everything. For, I mean, I thank you so much because I could go on for hours, but we better wrap this up. And thank you very much for being here this evening. Have a wonderful time with your... One Kelly to another Kelly. It's a pleasure. Right? From the Irish to the Irish. That's it. I will see you again, okay? You take care. Thank you. So I just got back from an amazing trip with my Fit is Freedom experience alumni. We went over to the Smoky Mountains. We did some hiking. Well, we did a lot of hiking. We played in the rivers and we just generally like used everything the groups learned over the last several months in the Fit is Freedom experience. And everyone did awesome. They were ready. They were prepped. They knew what to expect. They were in really, most of them said the best shape of their life. And it all came from working on consistency and working on cheering each other on, having that community, having that um, just the, um, the accountability buddies. And when you're really ready to learn, to get consistent with your fitness, when you're ready to have a group that's got your back, when you're cheering each other on, when you're looking for Mm, maybe like a deeper connection with me. I'm happy to be there for you. In fact, I'm there for you all every week. And it's just an, it's just a cool way to turn around what hasn't been working for us the last couple of years. So if you're interested in joining us, I would love to love to have you. And um, if you've got questions, there's a way at fitisfreedom.com forward slash waitlist and we'll send you some details, okay? Once again, that is fitisfreedom.com forward slash waitlist. I hope to see you there, and maybe you can come up with us on our next adventure. 